Hello, Andy Zaltzman. Hello. How are you? I'm okay, thanks. Are you feeling festive yet? Uh, no, oh. not festive. Really? Yeah. But you've got two small children. I have, yes, I would think but they're atheists. Make... <laughs> <laughs> it's hereditary. But do you get more excited about Christmas now you've got kids? Yes, yeah, unquestionably. And um, we're taking them to a Christmas market um, in Lille. Just wow. before Christmas. How old are they? Nearly three and uh, nearly one. So one-year-old presumably will... Oh, he's pretty ambivalent. Right, yeah. but the three-year-old... Yeah, she'll be very excited. Didn't you deliver one of them? Yes, I did. That's true. I delivered the one-year-old. Obviously the... not when he was one. I delivered him when he was naught. <laughs> How come? Well... <laughs> I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. I delivered him when he was naught. <laughs> How come? Well, <laughs> bad planning, largely, in that uh, labour had begun and uh, we were all set to go to hospital and our first child had been sent home from hospital for not being far enough into labour, so we thought, we'll avoid that this time. So I we thought, we'll hang on for a half an hour. And then my wife said, it's coming out. And I said, no, you're overreacting. Wasn't the wisest response in the circumstances. <laughs> she said, I can feel its head. So I was in a situation where, you know, having basically spent my entire life avoiding responsibility, <laughs> I had to deliver my own child. That's amazing. Did yeah. you feel like, you know, Des in Neighbours? I... Uh... <laughs> What, dead? Is he dead or not? <laughs> I don't I know, I just remember. remember he delivered Daphne's baby because we all That's noticed right, yeah. she still had her tights on. That's right, yeah, good memory of, of what <laughs> was that, 1980s neighbours. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, but that must have been amazing. Uh, it was incredible, yeah. So I was on a 999 call being talked through how to deliver a child. No way. So the basic advice, if you're ever in that situation, is... Uh, don't drop it. Right. And that's that's really all you need to know. So. Was there anything, though, that surprised you? Did they say, you know, I don't know. They, well, they just said, be careful, they're very slippery. <laughs> Seriously? So, um, yeah, which, you know, you kind of assume, but it's good to have that just yeah. sort of reminded to you, I guess. Wow. So, um, so he slithered out and uh-huh. uh, I caught him. And do you now feel like, well, if I was in another... You know, do you feel like if you were stuck like in a I'm, lift or something? I'm that... basically a qualified midwife. I don't know why they need <laughs> these years of training that they claim they need. That's awesome. <laughs> so, I mean, your kids are kind of too young to appreciate this at the moment, but presumably when they're a bit older, cool dad, comedian dad. <laughs> well, I don't know. It depends what I'm doing in, in 10 years, That's true. I guess. But your dad had a cool job. He was a sculptor. He right? is a sculptor. Yeah, still, still, yes. yes. Was that cool when you were growing up? Or was it was it like quite whatever? cool, yeah. He used just, just sort of disappear off to a studio every day and um, you know, everyone else's dads at school would be wandering around in suits and my dad might turn up to pick us up from school and covered in wax and plaster of Paris. Did that mean that they were a little bit more comfortable with you going into comedy as a career than other parents might uh, Yeah, it did mean that my father was not in a position to say, go and get a proper job to any of us. How old were you when you started getting into comedy in the first place? Well, I started on the open mic circuit in 99, so I was 24. Okay. Yeah, so I had a brief go at it before that as a student and then Wasn't your first gig gave up. kind of an accident? It was, yes. Um, you know an awful lot. <laughs> Just good at my job. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I agreed to host a comedy night for a friend in college who was a college ENTS rep who'd uh, sorted out uh, Natalie Haynes and Dylan Moran. And it was just before Dylan Moran got really famous. So at the stage when he was still agreeing to do gigs in colleges. And um, he rang up ill and couldn't do the gig. So I had to sort of just fill in. And how was it? Well, it was all right. Um, 
I drank solidly for half an hour, and you know, I don't drink generally, so I have a low tolerance. So I don't really remember anything about it other than the fact that it went all right. Right. And I thought, well, maybe I should think about what I'm going to say next. Next time I do it. Have you ever met Dylan since? I, I don't know. No, I haven't. So you haven't got to tell him that he's... No, he launched my yeah. spectacular career. <laughs> um, so you don't remember what it was like, but presumably it went all right. Do you yeah. remember what kind of stuff did you used to talk about? Because you're quite political now. Like, yeah, it you... wasn't political. No, it took me um, a year and a half, two years on the circuit before I had the balls to try and do political stuff, which oh, is really? always you know, what I'd wanted to do. But um, What kind of stuff did you do before then? Um, it was sort of nonsense. It was a bit surreal. I can't really remember. I remember I had a routine about being given a Scotsman for Christmas, which I did in my first ever gig at the Edinburgh Festival as an open mic act. And it, that gig went it went down so badly that I gave up stand-up for a year and a half. Seriously? After that gig. Yeah. Oh, man. We had Jim Jeffries on the podcast last week, and he was saying that he had a similar experience where his first gig, he stormed it, second gig ever, he died, and he stopped for six years. Right. And he was saying how... Early on, like the first time you die, it's the worst thing in the entire world. But then as you do more and more and more, the highs become less high, but the lows become less low. and you can. Yeah, you just it. learn to let it bounce off you once, once you've had uh, enough good gigs and enough bad gigs. Yeah, it's, um, he's right. I think you have an idea of why you're succeeding or failing in a gig. And also, I guess by that stage, you've made choices as to how you're going to do stand-up. And once you're happy with that, then you're prepared to fail on those terms if that's what happens. So what was it that made you decide to give it another crack? Well, just um, a couple of friends persuaded me to have another go at it, and I guess um, a bit of curiosity and um, sheer boredom with my job. which was a, What was your job? Well, it was a highly glamorous job uh, as a sub-editor at a business publishing house, wow. sub-editing articles about European stock markets. Did you want to be a journalist? Yeah, I really wanted to be a sports journalist. So that wasn't really sports journalism in any sense of the word. That was... That was sub-editing badly written articles about European <laughs> stock markets, about which I neither knew nor cared. It was aggressively tedious, so um, I resigned in a fit of boredom and uh, started on the uh, open mic circuit. And how did it go? Uh, well, it, it, well enough that I carried on with it this time round. But it's interesting, what, I think quite a lot of comedians have sort of given up and come back to it early on. And if your first gig goes badly, there is a temptation to think, I'm useless at this. So you need a bit of luck early on, I think. So you then, you were doing open spot stuff yeah. and then you did So You Think You're Funny. Yes. And got into the final. I got into the final, yeah. It was a strong final. It was, a yeah, it had Russell Howard, Jimmy Carr, uh, Josie Long, David O'Doherty. Who went on to win it. Yeah, he won it. Yeah, so it was a pretty potent lineup. And then the next year you went back and did... The Comedy Zone. Which is Avalon's... It was a late night showcase on about 11 o'clock at night in a uh, it was about 170-seat room, and I was by no means ready for that. And, really? Um, yeah, I think I had about a 50-50 hit rate at those gigs. It was uh, it was a learning experience, and um, it was you know tough at times. It's sort of an odd gig, because there's people like Harry Hill and Ross Noble and the Mighty Boosh guys have done it, yeah. and um, Izzy Sutty was on the podcast a few weeks ago. She was talking about how she did it, and... She was saying there was just quite often like kind of hen and stag nights. Yeah, it's much more like a club night than an Edinburgh gig. And um, yeah, if you're a new act, as I was and most people who do it are pretty new, it can really give you confidence of battering if you're having to fight a crowd for 25 nights in a row. But I think it also sort of focuses your mind on what you're doing as a stand-up, doing a whole run in Edinburgh, whether it's that show or anything else. And I, that's when I decided that what I was doing at that time was rubbish and to oh, really? basically start doing stuff that I actually cared about. So was that when you still weren't doing political stuff? Uh, yeah, I'd started you know, trying to do a couple of bits. Um, but um, I think with political comedy, you you've got to go all in and you can't swing from talking about the Iraq war to talking about why chips are nicer than baked beans you know, without it being a slightly odd 
marriage. So I just decided that I was going nowhere with what I was doing and that I needed to be a little bit more comedically courageous and honest. Well, it clearly worked because the next year you did your first solo yep. show. The... I got nominated for the Perrier Best Newcomer, which in those days was announced on the night of the awards. Now it's you get a nomination, so you get sort of three days of um, relatively intense media spotlights as media spotlight on new comedians goes. In those days, the nominations were announced and then the winner was announced two seconds later. So it was really exciting hearing my name called out. Had you been um, tipped off or anything? No, no. And I'd done three-week run in front of crowds ranging from single figures to slightly over single figures. So uh, it had been another tough learning experience, but it was you know kind of gratifying to get some... Had you just gone along to the party the just thinking, oh, well, this would be fun? Well, I thought, you know, I, I guess everyone who does their first show thinks there's a possibility that they might get nominated for a newcomer. But, um, yeah, no, it was a good night. And did it make a difference? No. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> made no practical difference at all. Really? Um, I went back the next year and I was playing to crowds that were still slightly over single figures so um no it didn't it was it was a confidence boost and i don't know maybe it helped a bit of name recognition within the comedy industry but i think it made practical difference and that's no. probably really the way it should be did you plaster it all over your posters and stuff i didn't i had it on my poster for the next year but um yeah i don't think people are that impressed by it to be honest as a punter was it the next year that you started working with john oliver well in fact john did bits in my my first solo show Andy Zaltzman versus the Dog of Doom, which was, I think, seen by a total of about 400 people over 28 nights. <laughs> so, so if you are one of those people, thanks for coming. So John did sketches and that and then did a little bit in my show the next year and I also did some stuff in his first show and then we did our first joint show in uh, 2004. And so you were doing that, also that same year you started doing Political Animal? Uh, yes. It started as a stand-up gig that I hosted in London at the Amused Moose Comedy Club. The idea was just that it would be a gig where people could come and do political comedy without feeling that they needed to win the crowd over first, and you'd kind of get a crowd coming expecting a certain type of comedy, and that basically I'd try and let any comedian who wanted to do it and try out political stuff have a go. And um, we had some really interesting gigs, and so we did it in Edinburgh, I think four or five years, and sporadically in London. Did you ever have anyone come along that you were surprised to see that, I mean, in terms of comics? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, there was there were plenty of people who don't generally do political comedy, and that, that was sort of the idea. And some of them came along and, and then didn't do political comedy, having said that they wanted to do it, and others came along and did some quite interesting stuff. Who like? Well, now you're testing me. Um, it's quite a while ago. I had uh, Russell Howard do it. This was before he started doing um, Mock the Week and came and did a really good set. And uh, Russell Brand did it a few times, did the live gig and the, the radio gig. And, and then we had people like uh, Rob Newman and Stuart Lee and Mark Thomas, who you might associate more with political comedy. So the radio gig was the show on... That was on Radio 4. When did you start doing that? Well, I did two series of that. I think the first one was in 2004 or 2005. OK, so about the same time as you started doing yeah. the show in Edinburgh. This all, to me, would suggest that the, your best newcomer... I mean, obviously, like, yeah, you're well, getting better, but it, presumably it makes people prick up their ears. I don't know. Them. I don't know if it was that or just people seeing the shows that I'd done. I don't know how much people are swayed by awards. I'm not, but right. maybe other people are. But it was more doing the shows and getting seen doing the shows, I think, than right. a nomination for a minor award. So you were doing that and then, still talking about Edinburgh, that was like two shows, regular yeah. shows, and then you started doing three because you started doing this one, Honourable Men of Art. With Kitson, Daniel Kitson, yes. Well, it was his show, really, and he had uh, me and David O'Doherty and uh, Alan Cochran and uh, Dimitri Martin did a few in the first year as well, and we had John Oliver by link-up 
via the internet from New York when he'd just gone over there the first year we did it. And it was just a late night show, which basically Kitson and uh, his mates <laughs> messing around. And it was great fun. It was one of the most enjoyable things I've done in live comedy. Doing that many shows, was that because you'd like doing a lot of shows? Is it because you're not good at turning stuff down? Or? Uh, well, no, I think if you're in Edinburgh for a month, then you might as well fill your time rather than just working for one hour out of you know your allotted 16 awake or whatever it is. Um, and also my stand-up show that I did at the stand, I did sort of three years in the afternoon at the stand, so I needed stuff to fill the bleakness of the evening. <laughs> You just mentioned, John Oliver, that it was a satellite link-up because he went to New York to start working yeah. on The Daily Show. That's right. Was that a problem? You'd been working with him so much, was it suddenly? Yeah, like... we'd been working together for, well, a few years by then and uh, we did The Department together, which is another Radio 4 series. Two which you did ago. with Chris Addison. With Chris Addison as well. as well. And the summer that he got The Daily Show job, we'd done a series of The Department and had just been working completely flat out on it for a couple of months. Also coincided with the World Cup so it was, you know, it was hard to get any spare time. And then <laughs> within, uh, basically on the same day, we, we had both of our radio series decommissioned. Um, so basically our careers were going nowhere. And then he got the Daily Show job, which was great. But it was, it was a kind of odd situation that um, having worked together you know, very closely for quite a long time, we then uh, had a sort of forced divorce. And uh, he went off and did the best political TV show in the world, political comedy TV show in the world, and I was back doing uh, pub gigs for 50 quid. <laughs> Slightly odd. But then you started doing political TV stuff. When was it you started working on Bremner, Bird and Fortune? Well, I think it was around, it must have been around about then. John and I initially wrote together for it, and then when John went to America, he, he didn't have time for it, so I just wrote solo for it. Were you actually kind of working directly with them, or was it sending... Oh, no, they basically say what topics they were doing, and um, I'd sit at home and write some jokes and email them in and um, wait expectantly by my telly on Saturday to see which ones... Oh, would they not tell you in advance? Well, no, because it's a topical show. It's all done very quickly, so I just email it in. But they seem to like it, and Rory's a delightful man, and he's great to work for. You've worked with him on other stuff? Yeah, in fact, he's done little bits in one of my new radio series and uh, a couple of other things. But he's been... uh, He's been good to me. I want to ask you about the radio series in a bit. But one of the things that you worked with Rory on, but also with John on, was this thing on the culture show. It was like a farewell speech. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, it was a farewell speech for Tony Blair when he uh, heroically stepped down from his job as Prime Minister to go and uh, save the world. And they commissioned us to write a uh, basically animated farewell speech that Rory voiced. And John and I wrote the text and then um, was animated. I forget who the animator was, but it was very good. It was on the culture show and... uh, and stuck up on YouTube, I think. It's um, still there now. It's still there now, yeah. is it? Right, OK. It's still up there. And you've done a couple of other telly things. You did 8 out of 10 cats. Oh, yes. You, well, did you like it? No, no. Why not? Well, it was a long, long recording. It was, it was about two and a half hours for the 24-minute show that emerges from it. And um, I was on a team with Kelly Osborne, and I don't know, I don't, we didn't really hit it off. I just felt we were almost... We might as well have been in separate planets. Right. There was that level of emotional linkage but um yeah it was uh not the proudest moment of my career really do, how do you feel about these panel shows and this kind of phenomenon uh well people like them so i guess that's why they're there i don't know i generally find them slightly tedious but that's if, uh, if that's what the public demands so there's bits of telly you did a thing a brilliant thing on Newsnight that was this oh, dragon's the den. dragon's den yes it, they did a, a political dragon's den series they got various people and I, I think I was the only comedian who did it but they had kind of proper people from pressure groups and um, charities and things going on and basically suggesting ways to cut public spending in front of a panel of political dragons 
featuring Greg Dyke, former head of the BBC, Digby Jones, who was a former head of the CBI and an ex-government minister, and a couple of other very eminent people. And uh, so I went on and suggested that there should be uh, compulsory suicide for, I think, over 75. And I'm going, we just can't keep... We can't afford, as a nation, to keep paying for old people to stay alive. You know, people were designed to live until they were 70, so anything else is a bonus, and it gets greedy once you get past 80. So, you know, we have to look at the bottom line here. You know, virtually all the world's economic and social problems could be solved if we reached a deal whereby everyone agreed that they are properly looked after, good quality healthcare, decent pension, until they're, you know, 75 or 80, but then they have to do the decent thing. So I was basically there suggesting to Greg Dyke that his mother had to kill herself How did he for take the good it? of the nation. <laughs> Remarkably well. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was a very odd thing. I was basically, it was almost like a stand-up routine in front of four people <laughs> sat in chairs. Most of them would work for the government at some point in their life. <laughs> So it was a, one of my odder gigs. You didn't get any letters of complaint from actual pensioners saying... No, I don't know, no. Okay. I'm sure they agree, really, in their heart of hearts. <laughs> I think, you know, if you, said, if you said the cut-off point was 80, I think 99% of people aged under the age of 79 would agree to sign up for it. <laughs> well, you know, now it's, it's on record here as well. That's another place that maybe people can... It's just no politician is going to have the courage to go with that as an election <laughs> policy. Maybe you should go into politics. Yeah, with that as my... As a, you know, as a sort of one issue... Yeah. I can't. I, I think it would be struggle to win votes. Would you ever be interested in going to politics? No, I don't. Ever? No, I don't think so. I don't think I'm serious enough. I, I can't take things seriously. But then maybe that's what people need. More <laughs> frivolity <laughs> yeah. in politics. Yeah, to, I don't know. I it's bet just, you'd get votes based on being a bit more frivolous. Yeah, you've not seen me do some of the gigs I've done though. You know, if you'd seen me at the Manchester Comedy Store, <laughs> Christmas 2002, you would assume that no one would ever vote for me to do anything other than leave the stage. So I don't know. <laughs> I think, in general, it would be good if there were many more independents in politics, independent MPs, because I think all the evidence suggests that we have become bored and disillusioned with the party system, and uh, ideally they ought to be just random people cropping up as uh, in Parliament to push Shake things different up. agendas. But then what about when you get, you know, the UKIPs and the... Well, yes, that's the flip side of democracy. <laughs> you just hope that the country has grown up enough not to vote for idiots. But um, democracy is littered with examples of that not happening. So we talked about a lot of TV stuff, but radio. I mean, you've done more radio. I've done, than... yeah, lots of radio. So, so I mean, radio when, when I go out the house, I have to basically talk through dark glasses to avoid <laughs> people recognising my voice. But also yeah. you did this show on Five Live in the summer for the yes. Ashes. Yes, yes. It was called Yes, It's the Ashes. It was a weekly Saturday morning show all about cricket, which was a, a dream. You love cricket? <laughs> I love cricket, yeah. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm prepared to trumpet it out loud on XFM's podcast. And also rugby. Yeah, any sport. I will watch right. almost any sport. You play sport. You organise the comedians. Comedians that... football. Well, we just it's just a group of comedians who are free on Tuesday afternoons. <laughs> but there's um, household names in there, and there's like a lot of comedians yeah. that people who aren't necessarily big into comedy. There's Rod Gilbert's played with you. Uh, yeah, and... he plays occasionally. Lee Mack plays. Russell Howard uh, plays every now and again. Pretty much anyone who's anyone in world comedy. So this on is that once Tuesday a week. <laughs> yeah. Are you guys any good? We're absolutely amazing. Yeah, I mean it's probably as good as football gets outside of uh, World Cups. No, we're not. We're no. And there's there's some guys who are quite good. Russell Howard thinks he's very good. He's a bit of flash a player. Doesn't know when to pass it. I would think it would be quite. It's quite an interesting personality type to play team sport with. Yeah. In the, 
there's, I mean, obviously comedians are all different, but there are a lot of comedians who are, you know, I'm the best, check me out, and trying yeah. to show off. So you're suggesting that comedians football is, a, is an individual game. Well, no, we just, don't knock it around. We don't play the kind of Dutch I'm, 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 I'm just style. interested in the dynamic of it. <laughs> well, yeah, no, it's basically... I think people cease to be comedians once football starts. Okay. And uh, you're just focused on the game and you just want to get the win, you know, <laughs> keep the fans happy. There's a wicked film on YouTube. There's a couple, actually. Oh, yeah, that uh, Dominic Frisbee made. Like little kind of documentaries almost of it. Yeah, um, amongst the greatest sports documentaries ever made, <laughs> I would say. And rugby, you're really into rugby, aren't you? Yeah. It's the Autumn Internationals at the moment. Yeah, which and have been awful. Yeah. Absolutely terrible. Rugby is dying on the vine due to the incompetence of its administrators. But I, I do love rugby, and it's uh, at the moment it's a dull sport. You follow a London team as well, Harlequins, though, yes. Who were involved in big scandal last year. Yeah, the Bloodgate <laughs> scandal, one of the most embarrassing, idiotic stories. In the Heineken Cup quarterfinal last April, I think it was, Harlequins were losing by one point with a few minutes left, and their star fly half, Nick Evans, who's a New Zealander, had gone off, apparently injured, and they wanted to get him back on the pitch when the other fly half got injured. The replacement fly half came onto him, they'd got a bad injury... So they needed to get Evans back on to try and take a kick at goal. And there's a loophole in the law that means that a player who's gone off can only come back on if another player goes off with a blood injury. So they got another player to fake a blood injury to exploit this loophole in the law. So it started off as a piece of kind of low-level cheating stroke gamesmanship of the kind that happens throughout rugby, and particularly in professional rugby, basically all the time. But Harlequins did it in a phenomenally incompetent and pantomime way. So they get, the guy came off with bright red stage blood. Not even stage blood, actually. It was fake blood from a joke shop. Not even proper stage blood. Just streaming out of his mouth. Had he, like, run face first into someone or something? Well, no, the, the, the TV footage that later came out it showed him kind of kneeling down, taking capsule out of his sock and then trying to bite it. <laughs> and it was badly executed. And then they denied it. And then there was this kind of elaborate cover-up. And just at every stage of this process, from it was the perfect storm. It started off with what is basically a bit of cheating that was not great, but it wasn't the crime of the rugby century. And they've just, by making the wrong decision at every stage subsequently, they turned it into a just a cataclysm that enveloped the club and resulted with uh, Dean Richards, the director of rugby, leaving and uh, I think the chief executive resigning. And What kind of wrong decisions? Well, well basically by denying it and throughout the disciplinary process and then... There was various sort of horse trading going on and plea bargaining and things. It was an embarrassment for Harlequins, an embarrassment for Britain. <laughs> it was, But it, it was just a ludicrous, ludicrous story and no one came out of it with any credit. I've dug out some other sports controversies right. to see if you know about them. Similarly ridiculous. I might be mispronounced this. John Hopperate. He's from uh, National Rugby League. He caused a big scandal in 2001 by sticking his finger up... Oh, right, yes. The backside of three... Rugby league player. Did you know about this? Well, I have heard that story, yes, and it's not something I think about every day. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> he inserted his fingers in three players' anuses and apparently he said in front of... Because it got put, yeah. you know, in front of the judges and there's some lovely quotes. that He says he was simply attempting to give all three players a wedgie with his fingers, denying he'd done anything wrong. Three simultaneously. <laughs> I think one That's after the other. That's a logistical achievement. <laughs> Maybe two are in the scrum close together. It's got big hands. That kind of thing, I think, pretty sure in public school rugby, it used to be compulsory to do that. I don't know. Well, he said he was a great believer in what happens on the field should stay there. 
Yes. Uh, <laughs> and then they came back, the three of them, and they all disagreed. One of them said, it wasn't a wedgie. That's when your pants are pulled up by your ass. I think I know the difference between a wedgie and someone sticking their finger up my bum. <laughs> well, you know, there's two sides to every coin, aren't there? <laughs> so that's one. There was one, did you hear about the, um, it sounds like a bad joke, the Spanish Paralympic basketball team at the Sydney Games. Who turned out to be fine. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Claimed to be mentally handicapped. Yeah, it was... Uh... Obviously a bit of an embarrassment for them, but I guess you you could say is it not discriminating against able-bodied people that they're not to, able to participate in these sports? <laughs> it's apartheid, but worse. <laughs> there was a horse race who raced in the... I'm assuming this is Australia, actually. The race at Gosford on Anzac Day, there was a horse called Love You, Honey. Right. It turned out to be a motorbike. No. Right. <laughs> Tested positive for cocaine. <laughs> Which is kind of amazing. They Does initially... that help a horse or not? I don't know. Right. Like, it's just a bizarre... Right. Probably make it tedious and self-indulgent, I would imagine. <laughs> you think it wouldn't help. It depends, you know, if it was a long... I don't know. I don't know. I've never taken cocaine, so, nor have I ever been a horse. But so presumably... I'm not really qualified to comment. <laughs> presumably working in the comedy world, one comes across it. Well, yes. People who have done. Yeah, in fact, I was backstage at a gig in Birmingham with a, another comedian who was um, sorting himself out, shall we say. <laughs> and he started a sentence... And then, in place of a comma, he snorted a line of coke. And then, without really breaking stride, he then finished the sentence. It was the most extraordinary piece of punctuation I've ever seen. Wow. OK, one more. Kathy Yeager. This is at the 99 World Veterans Athletic Championships in Gateshead. She was a muscle-bound granny who won a load of gold medals. This is sounding good. One of her Australian sprinting rivals accused her of being a man. Right. But when she passed a sex test soon after the Games... She was from Arizona, 56 years old. She then got banned from veterans athletics for taking anabolic steroids. That is taking veterans athletics too seriously. <laughs> to take steroids when you're competing against fellow grannies. <laughs> that is the lowest of the low. But there have been examples. There was a, in the 1930s Germany, there was a, uh, a high jumper who was a man who wasn't good enough to be a male high jumper but was quite effeminate. And the Nazis basically got him to compete with the women in the 1936 Olympics, thinking, well, we'll get a medal here, we'll get a gold medal, because he's a man, and he came forth. <laughs> and subsequently was, I think, caught when he was seen going on the way home from a athletics event, was seen by at a bus stop with stubble. So um, I'm not sure I've got all the facts of that right, but that's basically what happened. So he got happened. caught out? Yeah, so that was the end of oh, his stroke, her athletics career. <laughs> so you're doing a new show on Radio 4? Yes. Which starts next week? Yes. It's a history of the millennium so far. So the official title is Andy Zaltzman's History of the Third Millennium, Series 1 of 100, which is quite optimistic. I'm hoping that they'll let me do all 100 series. And that you'll live that long. Yeah, I think so. Well, I mean, I'll give me an incentive not to die, won't it, if I know that every 10 years I'll get a four-part radio series. Why would I die in those circumstances? It would be idiotic of me. <laughs> so, it's a, yeah, just a retrospective in four themed episodes of the decade. The first one's world politics, then economics, then Britain, and then... The planet, so encompassing the environment and trade and food and things like that. And you've got Rory Bremner on this show. Yeah, he does. Uh, he's voices of people like George Bush and Tony Blair, so I've been able to interview them as part of the show. How was that? Uh, it was great, yeah. He did an outstanding Nelson Mandela interview oh, really? as well. Yeah. And you've also got Bridget Christie's in it? Yes. And Lucy Montgomery yes. in Diddy Bang Bang. Indeed. So that starts next Thursday? Yes, Thursday the 10th. On Radio 4. And, yeah. oh gosh, do you know what we haven't talked about at all? Yeah. 
is the Bugle, the your Bugle. own podcast. Great, yeah, I thought that was because it was a rival podcast. No, no, sorry, not at all, right. not at all. I had it. I, just, so yeah, this I know is... there's, there's wars in cyberspace about podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> we can just scrap afterwards, but at least we're on there or <laughs> pretend we're friends. So this is the podcast that you do with John Oliver, yes. uh, even though he's in America. You... Yeah, so we do it yeah, through the wonders of modern technology. I'm in a studio in London, he's in a studio mostly in New York, depending on where his uh, America-trotting showbiz career takes him. Yeah, so we record down a phone line. And you've been you've done it for a couple of years. Yeah, two now. years. On episode ninety. Yeah, well, the, the first one of the new year should be episode hundred. Right. It's going to be the showbiz event of the century so far. And it's topical. Yeah, weekly uh, topical mixture of news and outright bullshit, um, which is, I guess, what John and I have tended to do over the years. And you've developed this big fan base in it. They have bits of websites dedicated to. Do they? <laughs> Yeah. Well, that's good. Uh, Yeah, no, we seem to... I mean, just from gigs that... I don't do so many gigs as I used to anymore, but almost every gig now there'll be some Bugle listeners coming up saying hello. So, uh, yeah, it's been great fun. It's for the Times Online website, and they've basically just given us complete free reign to do whatever we want, and uh, it's been fantastic. So that's on iTunes. The show is coming on Radio 4, and your website is... Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> uh, Man, I can't remember if it's .com or .co.uk. I normally I always think it's write .co.uk. .co.uk. Okay. I think so... I tried for .com and someone had taken it. Okay, so... And that's right. I, I looked at andysaltzman.com and it had been taken and all it said was, this is the official birth page of Andy's Altzman. What does that mean? I've no idea. Wow. I've May- absolutely no idea. Maybe it's a really big fan of yours who's going to do one for each stage of your life. It's possible. Well, and then bad. looked on the internet to see if there were other Andy's Altzmans. But um, I think my chance of doing a Dave Gorman-style show based on that are pretty slim. The only one I could find was an American swimmer called Andy Zaltzman, who I think won a race in about 1980 in the Maccabee Jewish Games. So he's the other celebrity Andy Zaltzman (laughs) knocking around. Okay, well, so essentially what you're saying is if people could just Google you, it's Z-A-L-T-Z-M-A-N. That's right. Andy, thanks so much for coming on. Pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes, Yes, marsha.com forward slash off the mic.